0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Busky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. I was in Philadelphia recently for a map conference at the American Philosophical Society. While I was there, I had the chance to see a really terrific exhibit. It's called Mapping a Nation, Shaping the Early American Republic. And using a combination of maps and objects like David Rittenhouse's mobile clock, the exhibition tells the story of the tools and the ideologies that Europeans and Americans use to make sense of the American landscape and render it in visual form. And While I was in Philly, I was fortunate enough to sit down with Drs. Aaron Holmes and Janine Bolt, the curators of the exhibition. Holmes, who is now at the University of Missouri, served as lead curator of Mapping a Nation during her tenure as a postdoctoral fellow at APS. We had a really great discussion about the origins of Mapping a Nation, its narrative threads, and the process as well as the challenges of mounting a major exhibition. And in addition to hearing about these maps, you get a sneak preview of what's coming next. Dr. Bolt, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at APS, is serving as lead curator of the Dr. Franklin Citizen Scientist exhibition, which will debut next spring. In fact, we recorded our conversation in Bolt's war room where she and her colleagues are mapping out Franklin's scientific world. And it's gonna be a great exhibit. If you are in or near Philadelphia, you have until December 29th, 2019 to see Mapping a Nation. Dr. Franklin's citizen scientists will come online in spring 2020. Now, before we begin, please remember to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, everyone, get out your drawing tools, grab your compass, and let's go map a nation.
1: And my the first time I ever went to Mount Vernon because I was there for six months as a fellow, mm-hmm. and then um, I. Because I grew up, like, 15 miles south of Mount Vernon. Okay. And so I, um, in high school, was doing the, um, was in the, what is it, National Honor Society. Um, Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And for volunteer hours, one of the options was to go help with the candlelight tours at Mount Vernon. And so, like, one of my, like, earliest memories as, like, somebody who liked history was standing on the back porch of Mount Vernon in December in the freezing cold, wrapped in a wool cloak, holding a lantern, opening and closing the door for visitors as they, like went into um, went from one room to the other and then just kind of standing there in the dark looking out of the Potomac and being like this is this is a very different under experience of <laughs> yeah. this landscape
0: so we're here at the the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia and the two of you were the co-curators of the mapping a nation exhibit which I got to see yesterday it's a really great look at um, the ways in which Americans people before they were Americans, sort of understood their place in the world and then tried to reconceptualize space and figure out what it meant to be a nation uh, in the post-revolutionary period. But um, I'm wondering about the, the origin story of that exhibit. How did that come into being and, and what, what, what things were in your heads as you were trying mm-hmm. to figure mm-hmm. out what kind of exhibition you wanted to mount?
1: Um, so the, the origin story actually goes back to before either of us were here The APS does a, um, in partnership with the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation has these postdoctoral curatorial fellowships Mm -hmm. and they're a two-year position. You come in and you're a co-curator for an exhibit your first year and then your lead curator your second year. So when I applied, I was told we want to do a show on mapping and the early Republic because we have these great map collections and we, we really haven't brought them out. Um, and so, that was that was the idea behind the show from the APS's perspective. And then I came in and um, I'm a historian of material culture and the built environment in early America. Um, my own focus is more on slavery and extends into the Caribbean, but that focus on materiality was was kind of important from the get-go. Um, so came in and started looking at the map collections and originally had a very different vision for the show, mm-hmm. um, which was... Uh, A lot more, I think, in keeping with most map shows, kind of focusing on the the biggest and most important maps in the APS's collection. But then getting into the archives, I think as so many historians know, totally transformed that. (laughs) Um, And we discovered things in our collections that while not necessarily the things that most... um, most people would be drawn to as, as the first or the most important, were just really intriguing and raised new questions mm-hmm. and gave us new ways to kind of think about objects and, and help visitors connect to them because material culture is just such a, such a powerful tool for helping people to connect with the past. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah, so I, when I came on board, Erin uh, had already been working for several months sort of thinking through the narrative she envisioned for the show. She's mm-hmm. the lead curator. Uh, so, when I came in, I you know, jumped in to support that vision, And but yeah, as Erin said, during the process of actually going through the APS's very extensive map collection, we made several sort of discoveries of collections of maps in the archive that sort of helped shape the narrative we were going to tell, um, and so we found things that we weren't necessarily expecting or that we pulled from the collection, and then when we started doing provenance research or larger research on the maps themselves, it became very clear where the exhibit had to go.
1: Yeah. So I got really fortunate because Janine had worked in the map collections at Colonial Williamsburg um, during uh, graduate school mm-hmm. and so that was an incredibly valuable thing to mm-hmm. have because um, I had mainly looked at maps kind of as look- places where I could find buildings up to that yeah. point. So,
0: Well I, I want to unpack all of that um, as we go along today but uh, one of the things I, I wanted to talk about was the um, the way in which you thought about this exhibit in relation to previous major exhibits that have been done in the last, oh, I guess, 10, 15 years, if that's fair. Um, there was the, the one of Leventhal Center and a couple at the Library of Congress. And so how, you know, what, what sense did you make of those particular exhibits? And then how did you think about the ways you might take this exhibit differently as you were looking at the materials in APS's collection?
1: So those exhibitions were really incredible. The two at the Library of Congress were both organized around um David Rubenstein's um, placement of an Abel Buell map, which is considered to be the first map of the new nation at the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. And so the first exhibition was focused on sort of creating the nation, and the second one was on the growing nation. Um,
0: both, Wh- when year was that map published?
1: Um, that map was published in 1784. Okay. Um, the date on the map is 1783, but it's published in 84. Um, and it is sort of in by a hair for a long time. They thought it was actually William McMurray's um, map that was the first, but Abel Buell is the first, um, and it's the first map published by an American of the new United States. It's a very political map. He goes in and takes the word new off a bunch of places, which is pretty fantastic, <laughs> including New Orleans. It just becomes Orla- or Orlans? Orlans? Yeah. Because um, he's, he's, like, totally advancing his political agenda. He's a really colorful character as well. So, like, he's, he's somebody that I think historians of that period and of mapping in that period are really drawn to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, unfortunately there are only seven copies of that map in the whole world at this point. Um, so it's both a great thing to organize an exhibit around, but also hard for anybody else to, unless you can get a loan of one of those. Um, and then the, the We Are One exhibition by the uh Map Center was just incredibly beautiful. I went from Boston to Colonial Williamsburg to the New York Historical Society, and I actually saw it in Colonial Williamsburg um, right around the time I was applying for this position. And so it was kind of in my head already um, thinking about what other exhibits had done with maps and really thinking about how they use them to tell narratives. Um, So oftentimes including maps related to sort of the important events in the Revolutionary War um, and in its aftermath. Um, And... So seeing those kind of gave a framework for how map exhibits had been approached. Um, there was another one that, um, at, the, at the Winterthur Museum that drew on samplers, which unfortunately are not well represented in our collection um, for a variety of reasons, largely because the APS's membership has predom- been predominantly white male Um, Um, Elites mm -hmm. really since the 18th century it's founded by Ben Franklin in 1743 they start collecting maps in 1769 so they're they're starting these collections early but they're not necessarily thinking that we should be kind of collecting the whole range of ways that you're you're creating maps Um, but as we got into the collections we really wanted to focus on kind of the materiality of the maps Mm -hmm. themselves, how they were being made um, because when you have to sort of step away from what is the first map of the new of the nation of a new nation or what is the most important map in a new nation, um, you have to start kind of thinking about how different groups are thinking
2: about maps, and that was
1: something that was really useful to us to to think about how you get those different perspectives.
2: I think Erin and I are also both historians who are very invested in telling stories beyond sort of the elite white perspective. And so we were very interested in telling stories about people who who made the maps and how objects get made. And so we have here at the APS a really great collection of surveying instruments that date back to the 18th century, some written house materials. And, so, and surveying notebooks, mm-hmm. so we were able to tell a very different story than some of these other archives that don't have those 3D mm-hmm. objects or don't have surveying mm-hmm. notebooks and things like that. So we, yeah. we very early on really wanted to showcase some of the objects that we had in the collection
0: too. So in a lot of ways, you were somewhat interested in the greatest hits, but more about what those greatest hits could illuminate about other aspects of map making and the material nature of those maps, but also how those maps could be in conversation with other maps mm-hmm. that are being produced at the time that not necessarily, you know, are, are going to be the ones that may get into a book that yeah. would be commonly be used.
1: Yeah. Well, and maps, maps are incredibly vis- visual things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think we were both really drawn to all of the things that they make invisible, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the labor that goes into them, the tools, the knowledge that you need to be able to produce them, or the kind of countless people who get left out of those stories. Sure. Um, because they, they aren't David Rittenhouse or Andrew Ellicott.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: We also are very lucky here that we have collections of maps that were donated by the map makers themselves mm-hmm. or map publishers themselves or were purchased directly from them because, of course, Philadelphia mm-hmm. is a center for map publication. Or donated the because they
1: knew that the APS <laughs> had, had people who were really interested in these things with money to, to spend on them. Right. Um, so they wanted to promote them that way. Mm-hmm.
0: What are the exhibition's major themes, and how did you put that together?
1: Um, so our major themes throughout the exhibition are sort of these initially really broadly looking at maps as both political and ideological tools and as vehicles for um, map makers to express their own political opinions and really exercise agency in um determining what information the maps contain and how that information is conveyed. So those were our two kind of twin themes throughout the exhibition. Um, But then within it, the first section, we we really dug into the idea of um, people in motion, looking particularly at empire. Um, And so thinking about those European empires, but also thinking about the the various native polities Mm -hmm. that existed at the same time and were um, competing on the same footing with those native or with those European nations, um, and so that first section really thinking about the instability of the idea of empire, mm-hmm. um, how from its very beginning it's relying on the commodification of national resources, um, the enslavement of of African people, and the dispossession of native peoples in order to make all of this work, and how that just that means that that instability is inherent in that system, and it, it's not really sustainable. Um, and then moving through the revolution, we, we talked about the creation of the new nation um, in the second section, which we called civic geography, which I still think is one of my favorite names, um, just wordplay-wise. But it's, um, so really thinking about how maps were used to articulate the different political ideas um, that were circulating during that period and kind of reconcile the growth of regional distinct regional identities Mm -hmm. with wanting to create a national identity. Um, And then the third section from, uh, I don't know if you wanna talk about that because that was, I think you're, you did a lot of the research on that section in particular.
2: So our third section is called uh, From Sea to Sea and we wanted to highlight sort of the chaos of the early Republic period from about 1790 to about 1816. And talk about all of these developing tensions and political issues that are occurring that eventually uh, push American white Americans west. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, large-scale westward sort of expansion and movement doesn't begin until the 1820s. But we and we didn't have time to tell that the story of sort of manifest destiny and large-scale westward migration in the exhibit. So we decided to end with 1816 and instead talk about the number of issues that eventually caused sort of westward expansions. We talk about, you know, increased immigration. We talk about the Haitian Revolution and refugee crises. We talk about the development of, um, or sort of the growing debates about the future of slavery in the United States, as well as the early uh, road systems and the expansion of the Postal Service. And then we have a section, of course, on Lewis and Clark and early westward exploration. Um, that precedes this westward movement.
1: So all the things that kind of make it possible, because um, one of the things, and thinking about the postal system in particular, these postal maps were a great way of sort of reminding people that nobody really wants to go places where there are, there's no infrastructure. But yeah. as the postal system, as people move further west, the post moves with them, and it creates this connection with the people that they're leaving behind mm-hmm. that makes them more willing to go even further. Um, so
0: thinking about how that that pushes th- people, but mm-hmm. what strikes me as interesting about this is that we, we, when you look at a map, it's a static object, or mm-hmm. at least the appearance of a static object. And so, you know, most school kids are going to look at a map and sort of see the the creation of the union over time and not think about kind of dynamic, chaotic things that you're talking about. And it seems like the what the exhibit you've all built is is in a way designed to undercut. That notions of stability and and look at the ways in which well, this is actually a very chaotic place, and and this is a, a very a dynamic, um, fluidic uh, set of circumstances that are leading to changes in the landscape and changes about how people are thinking about that landscape over time.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like that's the great opportunity in a mapping exhibition is that you are able to oftentimes pull out maps of the same place Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes from the same moment and show how you have so many different perspectives on the landscape and how perspective is really shaping this and you have these contested views and people are trying to advance one idea over another. I think um, for me, one of the things I was most excited to find was this collection of maps donated by Matthew Carey in 1805. And um, that's really where our focus on Tennessee in the middle section came from, mm. because we had sort of all the stages of the map's production, which allowed us to talk about sort of what the political goals they were trying to accomplish in the production of this map, because it's not originally produced for the, for Carrie's Atlas. It's originally produced as part of the campaign for Tennessee statehood. Um, but then as you move through the process of turning it from this two-sheet, hand-drawn map into something that is printed and really widely circulated. Um, you see kind of the, the things that get changed at each stage, what gets left off and what gets added. Um, so, I think that that changes your perspective mm-hmm. on it and that's, that's the great opportunity I think in, um, in museum work and in exhibiting objects like this is that you can bring them into conversation mm-hmm. with each other really directly for visitors.
0: We'll talk about some of the objects, uh, then, because one of the things I thought was striking about the exhibition was the, the amount of, of objects you have, you know. Um, I think probably my favorite was David Rittenhouse's mobile <laughs> clock. And by mobile, I mean, what was it, like, seven and a half feet tall, made of I, think so.
2: I mean, it's the size of, of a grandfather clock, yeah. Yeah. for those who haven't seen it in person. Yeah. And, and Rittenhouse
1: is known as a clockmaker. You can visit a lot of historic sites in Philadelphia and see the the fancier versions of his clocks. <laughs> Um, and it it has a lot of similarities to it, but it's definitely definitely a rougher looking object.
0: And what would a, what would an object like that? What would its purpose have been in the the map making process?
1: Um, so I won't get into all of the details because I have a blog post that I have been promising to finish <laughs> for for quite some time that actually does explain it, and it required learning a lot of math. Um,
0: <laughs> well, this is a good preview, then a little plug yeah, for a fourth. Time. Uh,
1: which, as a historian. Uh, at least for me, I am not a math person. Um, I always feel very bad admitting that, but you know, I'm a historian. Um, but essentially, he would be using the clock to establish what's called solar noon, which is the moment when a star, in this case, the sun, crosses um, the meridian. So okay. it allows you to establish precisely where you are in relationship mm-hmm. to another known time, another known like place and time. Um, so, astron- um, people like Rittenhouse, who had a background in astronomy, made fantastic surveyors. When you get into like mm. the the, there's all of these treatises that they publish, um, really starting at the end of the 17th century and throughout the 18th century, about how you do the work of surveying. If you look at most of the founding fathers, um, pretty much every colonial official at some point they work as a surveyor mm-hmm. because it gives you this really close knowledge of the land, um, but. Most of the time, people like Washington who are going out, they're, they're really working off of like really rough understandings of surveying. So they're looking at what they see. They're putting it on paper. Um, someone like Rittenhouse is who you're going to call if you are, say, trying to extend the Mason-Dixon line, mm-hmm. trying to figure out where it originally ended, and trace that really precisely. Because um, knowing you have to know astronomy, geometry, um, math, Geography, like all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would be using this clock in order to make sure that he has the most precise location um, at any given moment in combination with an, a number of other, other instruments. Um, and so together they allow him to know exactly where he is on the surface of the globe. That's um, a lot of math. It's a lot of it's a it, lot. yeah.
2: It was a challenge for us because we had to learn the math involved in how to calculate mm-hmm. these because we were insistent on including things like the clock or the compass <laughs> yeah. and the like mm-hmm. gunders chain. So we had to learn all the math and sort of the math behind map making, and then we had to learn it well enough that we could then write labels about it and mm-hmm. write labels at an eighth grade reading level, which yeah, is sort sure. of our target reading level for our broad audiences here at the APS Museum, um, and to be able to explain it. Um, so. It was it was a great chance. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It's one thing to like learn learn something well enough that you can like kinda get through it. It's another thing to learn it well enough that you can explain it to an eighth grader. Yeah. Um and still actually know that what you're saying is correct. Because right. I, I get halfway through explanations and did I mean yeah. did I say that yeah.
0: right? Did, did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um but the and the surveying instruments I think And Janine has found this, I think, with the Franklin show that she has now begun work on and is in the midst of um, as her position has turned into her lead curator, becoming lead curator. Um, But like every show you have like Mm -hmm. your thing. And for me, it was the surveying instruments. And my poor colleagues here had had to put up with so much of like. I found out what David Rittenhouse changed, or one of, <laughs> suppose he's credited with six cha- making six changes to compasses.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I, haven't, I can't find a list of the six changes, but I'm working on it. I'm slowly, I've got, I think, four of them. Um, but one of the ones, and you sometimes, like, don't notice these things because you take it for granted because you look at the object every day and, and it's just, it's a compass. You know what a compass looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at it really closely and you realize that on the Rittenhouse compass on the exhibit, east and west are on the wrong sides, or at least oh. what we think of as being the wrong sides. Um and this is something that Rittenhouse is credited with. It allows you to it allows the surveyor because you're not actually using a surveying compass to find north necessarily. Mm. You're using it to establish um, the direction of a particular line. And so, by flipping east and west, it allows you to more precisely um, gauge what the where the line is and read the compass I more see. easily. Um, so the arrow ends up actually pointing at the direct, like it says what direction it's pointing at, <laughs> as opposed to having to mentally flip that. And so Rittenhouse just cha- changes it on this compass.
0: Um, he was like, screw this. We're just going to fix <laughs> yeah. this right now.
1: And and it's, it's still something that, um, like, really good surveyors' mm-hmm. compasses today, you can still find them. Um, they flip east and west.
0: Holy uh, damn. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> so you've incorporated these objects. And so one of the things that I'm really curious about is pretend I'm an eighth grader for a second. <laughs> um, what does it take to mount an exhibition because we've already you've already dropped some hints that that it shifted over time as you dug into the collections over here but like what what are like the fundamental things you have to do to actually pull something like this off
1: mm. Mm.
0: besides a lot of hard work and and maybe some prayer and, and late night <laughs> yeah
2: <I've
1: done laughs> lots of research um,
2: yeah. um, so we spent a lot of time going through the collections here, figuring out, yeah, lots of research to figure out what the overall narrative is, and then lots of research with the actual objects to figure out what objects do we have that allow us to tell a story, and or what story can we tell with the objects that we have. And then you put together a very long list of mm-hmm. objects, which then get sliced down mm-hmm. to the essentials. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I don't know if you want
1: to... Yeah, we had... Um- so the the exhibit that's currently up has 81 objects in it. Um and maps
0: and and map, three-dimensional maps, maps
1: and three-dimensional objects. Yeah. So total um and two loans. Um Yeah, just two loans. Um from other institutions. Um, so mostly drawn off our own collections, so a lot of sort of thinking about we have and, and what we can highlight in our collections. Um, and then you take it to the conservators who that's part of the slicing down process. Mm-hmm. Um, the conservators look at it and say, you know, how much work is it going to take to get this in shape for an exhibit? Um, most museums spend between two and five years putting together exhibitions, um, here just, um, because of kind of the nature of this position on the way it's set up, we get about 10 months. Okay. Um, from start, yeah. Uh, from start to finish.
0: So you're hustling.
1: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Every moment.
0: Um, and you,
1: you work really closely with the two curators to, to develop this narrative. Um, once you're settling on objects and that process tends to reveal either holes that you need to fill or things that maybe are making it harder to, to produce mm-hmm. that tight narrative. Um, throughout that whole process, we're working with, um, our associate director for collections and exhibitions as well as the curatorial assistant thinking about the element, the more practical elements of design. Um, You know, Are we going to have to build a wall in the gallery in order to have enough space? And where can we put a Mm -hmm. wall? Um,
0: And I was wondering about that yesterday as I was walking around. Is that wall permanent or is that something that had to be erected for for the purposes of this
1: exhibition? The the center wall?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So
1: the center wall, I think, has been there for three exhibits now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it will be there for at least... The next one, Yes. Um, we definitely be here for the <laughs> next one. The next We're not one. changing that one after beyond that. Um, I I don't know that we can really say, but we add spur walls oftentimes. Uh, uh-huh. um, so the the configuration, so the middle wall has been the same more or less, and then the walls coming off it. But we did add like a small extension to one of the walls um, for this one, and then there had previously been added a small extension to one of mm-hmm. the the wings, so to speak, um, to give us enough wall space to to show something and that that changes things so we ended up mm-hmm. with one wall that was um the one that kind of curiously comes out and now has the the census um oh yeah graphic mm-hmm. so while we're working on the narrative our um our education staff is also developing programming ideas and um thinking about how what educational moments the gallery space is mm-hmm. going to need um, they're also kind of keeping us in check about our language often i believe we had was it Transcontinental was one yes. of the words we
2: Transcontinental was a great office debate about whether or not that was considered eighth grade reading level and it was appropriate for yeah. us to put on a label without mm-hmm. defining it very explicitly. I yeah. see.
0: So um. less worried about swear words and more worried about Correct. transcontinental real transcontinental yeah. transcontinental, or, or transcontinental. Or words yeah. like cartouche. Cartouche, yeah.
1: That there's really no you really do need like a thirty-five word label yeah. just to explain what the word cartouche means. Mm-hmm. And so our our compromise there was to do this um, this in gallery um, takeaway that you can can pick up that talks about map making in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. um, and the people involved in that and has sort of biographical information about that, but also has a portion on it that shows you the that breaks down the parts of the map and Mm -hmm. how you read a map. Um, And so we defined cartouche there and that. I was determined to be satisfactory, as well as the fact that we were pretty clear in our use of cartouche. Like you can't, you can't. I think read that label and not know what part of the map
0: we're talking sure. about. Sure. Well, and, and it, it gets to the point, um, right, that exhibitions are not only about selecting the objects mm-hmm. and arranging them into a logical, or not not logical, mm-hmm. but into a coherent narrative but then you actually have to write the text
2: mm-hmm. right
0: uh and i i i'm interested in that because i actually just had to do it we're doing a temporary exhibit here in uh, not here but at, at mount vernon in a couple of weeks and i had never written labels before and so um that was kind of terrifying i mean mm-hmm. it's we're just five bloody maps but i was like how, yeah. how am i gonna pull this off
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and label writing is is a cha- it's such a useful I I think I came out of this experience a much better writer, Mm -hmm. um, because when you're forced to condense extraordinarily complex ideas, multiple histories, and still talk about really clear, be very, very detailed about the object that you're talking about in, like, 35 words, um,
2: that's... Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, speaking, we're both PhDs, right? Yeah. PhDs aren't known for being concise. No. No. No.
0: The more (laughs) we write, the better.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's yes, it's a very different writing.
0: Yeah. Exercise. Oh, you want thirty-five <laughs> words? Have about twenty-five thousand. <laughs> right. <And then>
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's such a such a good challenge. I kind mm. of wish um, I was fortunate enough in graduate school to have a professor who had a museum studies background and taught material culture by having us write museum labels for objects. Oh. So getting that's that a good like skill. getting a little bit of a preview there, but I I kind of think that that would be just a useful exercise mm-hmm. for just about anybody who wants to be a professional historian, wants to be a good writer. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and it gives you a, a lot of flexibility then, too, because, you know, this is a very public history exhibit, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's not something unless... A lot of programs you go to, unless you're explicitly there for a public history position, you don't get that kind of training. And so mm-hmm. uh, and then sometimes you find yourself in places like this, and you're like, oh, well... Now I've got to figure it out.
1: Yeah, that's that's I think kind of the the idea behind this this curatorial postdoc is that it gives you that hands on mm-hmm. training because that's one of the most important things I think about public history is how much of it you learn by doing and you learn through experience and sometimes trial and error and by actually doing the work mm-hmm. of public history um, and so really you need to get out of a classroom no matter how many classes you've had. Once you hit the ground, it's, it's a very different experience. Yeah, be amongst
0: the people. So, and how long, how long is this ex- exhibition run, Mapping a Nation?
1: So it opened in April and will be closing in at the end of December, okay. December 29th.
0: December the 29th. So if uh, folks are in Philadelphia, come to the APS and see that. But then after that comes down... It's time for uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Franklin and science.
2: Yes. So the next year's exhibit will have a couple months for us to do de-installation, construction, painting, and and installation of the new exhibition. And on April 3rd, 2020, uh, the next exhibition, Dr. Franklin, Citizen Scientist, will open to the public. Mm
0: -hmm. So I I should say we're... We are in a former bank building right now. Mm-hmm. This is one of the buildings APS controls and we're actually in your war room right now. Yeah. We're looking and on the wall here you you know of course you, you can't see it but I'll describe it. We are looking at essentially what will be the framework for your exhibition. Um, Mm -hmm. With the intro space, should I I say it or how about you say it? Sure.
2: Yeah, (laughs) so basically we have printed off pictures of all of the objects that myself and my co-curator, Emily Margolis, all the objects that we hope to include in the exhibition space. Um, And then it's arranged uh, by section as we envision it for the exhibit. So we have an intro space, which is sort of where you walk in, where we want to do sort of a configuration of of some kind of a portrait wall to emphasize Franklin's interest in visual culture. Um, And then we'll have a a sort of a small section called Transatlantic Currents of Knowledge, which is going to look at uh, sort of the history of science and how science was practiced in the Atlantic world during Franklin's lifetime. And then a very large second section called Useful Knowledge in the Making, and that is going to be broken up into subsections dealing with sort of the science of printing, electricity, water, and climate, um, the study of humankind, and then sort of the scientific home, and we'll look at how science takes place within the household. And then lastly, a small section at the end. called For the Benefit of Mankind in General that's going to look at Franklin's use of his of his privileged position in society to help share knowledge mm-hmm. and scientific knowledge with, with the United States. And it's going to be a very Philadelphia-centric sort of section.
0: So we've talked about some of the challenges with the mapping exhibition. So what, what challenges are you facing right now with thinking through right. the design for this exhibition?
2: So we only have 1,100 square feet and we have literally... Thousands and thousands and thousands of things related to Benjamin Franklin uh-huh. here at the APS Collection. We have one of the largest collections of his of his letters, of his papers. So the greatest challenge was simply figuring out how can we tell a story in approximately 80 objects yeah. um, with such a massive collection? And then which stories do we highlight? Um, and how, how can we do that in a responsible manner? So... So that is sort of the greatest challenge. And then my personal challenge um, is also that, you know, it's Ben Franklin. And so coming into this, it's sort of like, okay, how can I put on an exhibit that says something new and or unexpected Mm -hmm. about someone who's been so well studied? Sure. And so that is sort of a secondary sort of challenge for us, is to create something that will be of interest even to uh, a Franklin scholar who knows everything about Franklin.
0: Exactly. Well, and I I think that's a great point, is is with both of these exhibits, it's not about simply just putting something out there that would be of interest, but, you know, using your train to say something new. Yeah, right. Uh, But a similar question with the mapping, you know, science is a very complicated thing, uh, especially 18th century science. And, you know, I can see that you have selected some objects of scientific <laughs> equipment. Uh, it almost looks like a cathode tube up there um, of some kind, but under, under the electricity section.
2: Yes. Uh, so we have a set of, of Leiden jars that uh, were reportedly used by Franklin uh, in his electrical experiments, and then a glass electrical tube. Um, this one may or may not have been used by Franklin or one of his colleagues, but it was made at the Wisterberg Glass Works, which Franklin sort of... Um, worked with, he wanted them to make electrical equipment here in the United States. Cool. So it, it is a local, a locally made product.
0: So from farm to table, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how are you thinking about distilling these complex yeah. ideas about, yeah. uh, down to an eighth grade re- reading level?
2: So we have decided to focus very heavily. We've decided to focus um, using Benjamin Franklin's life and works to really focus on uh, Teaching people about how knowledge is produced, so based on knowledge is contextual, right? It's constructed, and then how knowledge, access to knowledge, and Uh how knowledge is shared. Um, And then, so we are going to be focusing on that. Um, And there's talk this year of of also creating sort of more kid friendly labels that are specifically for children that connect sort of these scientific ideas uh, specifically for younger children. We also plan on making explicit connections to contemporary scientific practice. Uh-huh. And for example, Franklin charted the Gulf Stream, he wrote about climate, and so drawing contemporary oh, yeah. connections to yeah. you know climate science, that these, um, that these issues are still in the news today, mm-hmm. um, but that Franklin and his colleagues were also discussing them in the past.
0: And will you be flying any kites? <laughs>
2: <laughs> not during an electrical storm. Not during
0: electrical storm. Um, That's one of the things that the kids will not be doing. <laughs>
2: and we are hoping to move, um, tell a much more comprehensive story than beyond the Kite and Key experiment, uh-huh. um, right? So we do have, we are talking about the Kite and Key experiment, but we're hoping to put it in a larger perspective and show that Franklin, you know, didn't invent electricity so much as he figured out some of the ways to control it.
0: I see. So, so mm-hmm. some, something similar like the maps, right, where it's, you think you know it, what this thing is, but really, let's tell the deeper story here. Right. Great. Well, um, I want to thank you very much, both of you. This has been an excellent discussion, and I think uh, if folks are coming to Philadelphia. In the next couple of months, you've uh, got something to look forward to uh, with the mapping exhibition, and then uh, Dr. Franklin and the Citizen Scientist is on tap uh, for the spring. All right. Well. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Okay.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.